you're listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real-life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Hey, 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 this is the Real Talk SLP podcast, and I'm your host, Felice Clark, the Dabbling Speechy. And I'm super excited because I'm having another OT SLP duo on the podcast. Um, and it's they're just really fun to talk with. I love talking with you know, different disciplines and how they're collaborating together. Because you know me, I love collaboration and I love doing collaborative service models. So um, I was really excited when Mara and Annabeth said they would come on the Real Talk SLP podcast to talk about AAC assessment and how to collaborate with your occupational therapist. And I'm just going to tell you guys, before the interview, you know me, I love to collaborate. I totally collaborate with my OT. Um, I would say in the school setting, you know, some of the roadblocks that I face with collaboration with the OT is that we are kind of like thieves in a night. Um, They usually have three to five schools, giant caseloads, and they're never at the campus when I'm at the campus. So it's not that we would never collaborate or do co-treatments together. It's a lot of times they're not even there on the day that I'm there. But I definitely have found other ways to collaborate with OTs. And since this interview, I now have even more ideas and ways to just work with the OT when I'm working with a student who, you know, has some needs for AAC. And and so you're really going to love this conversation, not just because they're very, very knowledgeable in this area, but because we talk about the 90s and the two, early 2000s. We, we, we share our song choices for the week, which I was very delighted with their song choice and had a good discussion about that. These ladies are they're OT and SLP duo, but they also love the 90s and fanny packs. So you're going to hear all about that in the episode. And I don't know about you guys, but after having the interview, I started thinking about, well, yeah, what are the things from the 90s that I remember? Because, you know, I'm an elder millennial. I'm an elder millennial. I'm about to turn 40 this year. I was born in 1981. So yes, technically I'm still a millennial. But I don't, I don't identify so much with this like growing up with technology because not only was I born in the early 80s, I also had a mother who was a physical education teacher and my dad was a firefighter and they were absolutely like, get out of the house and go play. No, you can't own a, you know, Game Boy and we aren't buying you a Nintendo. And I'm like, but, but I want one. And so I didn't really grow up with a lot of technology until, you know, the 90s when the computers really started to take off and I used them for school and stuff. But I just remember from the 90s, you know, wearing my legging shorts and my neon tank top and a helmet, of course, a helmet safety always, um, and rollerblading all around the neighborhood. (laughs) Like, I just remember rollerblading everywhere. And with my knee pads and everything, because I have safety parents at home. (laughs) My parents were all about safety. But I don't know about you, but if you, do you have a fun 90s memory that, you know, from your childhood or even just 
where you were, you know, you veteran SLPs were like, I've been, I was practicing for a really long time in the nineties and I was not a child. And you're, you're thinking, I have, I can't even relate to this. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so anyways, I want to let you know about a free download on my website before we head to the interview. It is a, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I have a free speech therapy assessment template that is free on my website that you can, I'll put it, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it has, you know, it has everything you need to do a legally defensible report. And it's a template so that you can you can customize it for your student that you're assessing, but it has some of that wording and pre, you know, things pre laid out. So that way, when you go to write the report, you're not super overwhelmed with what you're going to say. So it even has, you know, templates for some, for a lot of the different reports that we use. And yeah, it's, it's a time saver for sure. And I hope you enjoy it. So please go download that. I thought that would be a good download for you since we're talking about AAC assessment. It is not an AAC assessment template um, because those are really extensive, but it does have a lot of stuff in there for you that's that, that will help you with report writing. Um, anyway, if you are enjoying the Real Talk SLP podcast, I would love, love, love if you left a review for me telling me what you're loving about the podcast and what you hope to hear in the future, you can always reach out to me at the dabbling speechy on social media to tell me what kinds of topics you would like to hear about or guests you would like to, you know, have come on. It always helps me to know what you're wanting to listen to and what you love about the show so that I can continue doing that and bringing on those guests or, you know, changing things up to help you be the best SLP out there, right? So anyways, so let's head on over to the interview with Mara and Anna Beth. Well, welcome, welcome, Mara and Anna Beth. I'm really excited to have you on the Real Talk SLP podcast. We are so excited to be here. I love having SLP and OT duos on the podcast because I'm all about collaborative service models, and it's really great to find out how other disciplines are helping students today. So we have an SLP OT duo, and if you both could introduce yourself, Mara is the SLP, Annabeth's the OT. They work together. They are friends in real life, I believe. Like best seems, you guys seem like your best based on your Instagram. Um, yeah, so if you could share a little bit of your professional background, um, I'm of course going to ask you about your fanny pack story and the name behind your Instagram. So be prepared to answer that. But um, yeah, if you want to, you know, start off with your professional background, we can start with Mara. Sure. So my name is Mara. I'm a speech language pathologist, and I have about a little over five years experience all in pediatrics. My clinical passions are really in the areas of AAC and um, AT, and then I love to do, I love to wear a feeding hat sometimes as well. Um, But at the end of the day, I still am a generalist, but I would consider myself moving more towards um, AAC. And I love all things collaborative care and just pediatrics in general. I have always been scared of adults and all my 
all my graduate school placements were in pediatrics and I got my adult hours in high school. So adults are not my thing. I think we might have been living dual lives or something because that's exactly, I did not do placements in a hospital and I worked in a high school to get my adult hours because I knew I was going to be either in the schools or private practice. So yeah, I definitely can relate to that. Um, I did a hospital placement, but it was a children's hospital and that was definitely my jam. So that's awesome. Yeah. One of my friends works for a hospital and she does feeding therapy at the hospital with younger kids, which I think is super cool and specialized. And you don't hear of that all the time. So awesome. Welcome, Mara. Thank you. Yeah. Annabeth, you want to share a little bit about your background? Yeah. So I'm an occupational therapist. I've worked for about nine years, all in pediatrics as well. Um, And really, I'm a generalist as well, as Mara said, um, but really love all things assistive technology and AAC. Um, Right as a new grad, I started working with a caseload that was totally made up of kids with multiple neurological conditions. And so all of them used alternative access to access really everything, including AAC. So I was really pushed into that world, um, had to jump in headfirst to learn all of the technology and um, really sort of where I got specialized there, but also where I got so many awesome opportunities to um, collaborate with other team members, including my SLPs who are all my BFFs. So yeah. So how big is your, you guys work together at the clinic and then you see like kindergarten to high school age kids? Is it? We white? are, we see birth to 21 plus. At one point I had, my oldest was 27 on my caseload and my youngest was four months. So we, oh, wow. we see everything. Yeah. And then do you didn't do co-treat with OT all the time or is it kind of hit and miss or case or, you know, client by client. It's definitely client by client and um, insurance dictates a lot of what we do. And sometimes in the insurance world, co-treats are not necessarily accepted, but we definitely are fortunate to have a very collaborative model in our setting because we have OTs, SLPs, and PTs who all work in our clinic together. So at any one moment in time, you might be in the same room with another practitioner doing a session at that same time. Obviously not in the COVID world, but um, prior to COVID world, you'd be, you know, sharing the gym with a couple OTs and a couple SLPs and a PT. And there's really no specific room that you have to go to. So you could all do peer plays with your kids that you're treating. So it's highly collaborative in that way. That's really cool. Yeah. And I was going to also say that um, in my placements over the years, I mean, I've definitely done AAC assessments and that's what we're going to be talking about today, but I don't, I never really collaborated with my OTs on AAC assessments. I mean, I've collaborated with OTs. So like to hear that you are part of that process and helping kids get access is I'm very, you know, I'm excited to hear how that works. Um, so I can start doing some of that in my own practice or at my school that I work at. Um, but yes, so we are 
definitely talking about AAC assessments and how you can collaborate with your occupational therapist. But before we jump in, I always ask my guests to share a song lyric or a song that represents, you know, your discipline or speech therapy. But today, if you have a song to share about interdisciplinary collaboration and the process of working together, um, I would love it if you guys shared a fun song. We had trouble coming up with a song. We're like, we should be the people who have these 90s songs, like we're all over it. Um, But I think we got stuck on the collaboration part. But well, I don't think I don't think we had trouble coming up with a song. We had about <laughs> maybe eighteen hundred text messages yes. back and forth. To yes. each other we had too many choices, <laughs> <laughs> but we came to the conclusion. <laughs> we decided that we needed a song about friendship, so we went for "You've Got a Friend in Me" from Toy Story because you really do have to have like very close relationships with the people that you're collaborating with. And Mara and I have always said that. I mean, you picked up on it from our Instagram account. We are best friends. And I think that that makes us stronger clinicians and stronger, like, clinical partners. Um, So, yeah, that's what we're going with. Plus, I love some Toy Story. So, Yeah, I thought you'd pull out a 90. I guess, I don't know when the Toy Story movie came out. If you guys don't know, if you're listening and you're new to hearing these ladies, they like the 90s. I don't know when you guys were born, and I don't know if you want to tell when you were born either, but they are 90s and 2000. They love those eras. 90s um, and 2000s nostalgia is definitely our thing. So those, yes. that, those generations were our childhood. Yes. And I'm probably in the middle of both of them. Like, I was born 81. I'm about to be 40. But I was definitely a 80s and 90s girl. So um, I was going to say, it takes two to make a thing go right. See, I was I was thinking that one. I also just like, stop, collaborate, and listen. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, and I threw out All Star, which has nothing to do with collaboration. But that was always my go-to, like, pump-up jam. And I feel like you just kind of need a pump-up jam when you're going to collaborate with somebody and to be on an All Star team. Very good. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I think um, sometimes you got to pump up just to be like, I'm going to go in there and talk to this person. And it's going to be really, uh, we don't know. (laughs) So it definitely is a lot easier to collaborate when you're friends, or at least when you have a common ground, I would say, or yeah, because I've worked with people, we're not always best of friends, but we've, we have a common ground. We communicate well. We care about each other. For sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely easier when you have a common ground. But I guess the common ground for anybody that you're going to collaborate should be the child and the best interest of, of the child. So hopefully that can be a common ground that everybody can agree to in order to collaborate. Yes. And I think if you keep that mindset, it's kid first, egos and pride usually melt away with time. But yes, I've worked with people who I've really, really enjoyed. And it's, it's amazing. Um, And because we know each other really well, and we can build off each other. So this is awesome that you guys get to work together and be besties. That's not really always the case. So um, very cool, very cool. So I thought we would start out Oh, wait, before we talk about AAC, maybe really quick talk about your Fanny Pack Therapist Instagram account. <laughs> sure. So Fanny Pack was born 
from an idea that both Annabeth and I had of just blending our treatment approach together because we both have very similar treatment styles in the sense that we are minimalists. We like to do um, play-based and child-led therapy first and foremost. And so most of our sessions, you'll see the child kind of dictating the session and then us fitting in our goals um, wherever that that session leads us to rather than having some prepped materials and everything. So we kind of first bonded over that idea of minimalism in therapy, but our real jam and our clinical passion is AAC and AT. So we kind of were like, well, that's what we like to share our knowledge about. And that's, that's our jam. And then um, with the fanny pack, minimalism therapy fits very well into our fanny pack theme because, you know, we're all about 90s and 2000s nostalgia. So that's, I guess, where the representation of the fanny pack came from of, oh, hey, we like fanny packs. And now they're kind of in style now. (laughs) So you can fit all your materials to do a session in a fanny pack. And um, well, yeah, Annabeth, anything to add to? No, I think you covered it all. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. I wore fanny packs as a kid. And then when we went to Disneyland as a family, I'm like, I need something for my phone because trying to keep track of kids and all your things. So I rocked the fanny pack and so did my husband. And we were we were proud walk, walking through Disneyland with our fanny packs. And so we had come up. Yeah, we, we had come up with the idea for the fanny pack therapist pre-COVID. And then you know, we were out of clinic and then we were transitioning back to this hybrid model. And we were like, wait, like this is actually like, really we could use this now in therapy because you have to minimize the stuff that you're bringing or minimize the stuff that you're bringing into clinic to be able to just efficiently use materials and be able to keep things sanitized. And again, it was just convenient and hands-free and a really cool approach. Yeah. So that's really cool. So um, I love it. So yes, you need to follow them at the Fanny Pack Therapist on Instagram. They're really fun to follow. Um, and they show lots of fanny packs <laughs> and also give AAC tips. <laughs> so let's jump into talking about AAC assessment and just the process that the two of you, you know, how you guys collaborate on these assessments. So I figured it'd be good if like to have you, Mara, discuss what you do when you first get an AAC referral and how do you approach that assessment, kind of like walking us through as through the SLP lens on what that looks like on your end. Sure. So the referrals look a little bit different depending on what type of referral it is. Annabeth and I work very closely in a special program that we have, which is a um higher frequency model for an AAC eval. So if a child is coming through that program, Annabeth and I will be chatting together and doing that as more of a co-treat model. However, if I just got an individual client coming in for an evaluation and um, AAC is a need, what I'll do is really, we are the communication experts. So in our scope of practice, you are evaluating communication skills of that child. So expressive language, receptive language, cognitive language, social language, um, 
all of the the baseline communication skills that they have, the functions of communication they have, and um, what what areas for growth that is in. So you're really just looking at the whole whole child's communication profile, I suppose, and um, family communication goals with that, and obviously meeting the family way where they are at in their AAC journey, whether it's that initial conversation of multimodal communication approach, or if it's really finding the best fit in terms of an AAC device, because after that kind of initial look over of all the communication skills at baseline, we want to look at the strengths and unique um, yeah, unique strengths and abilities of the child in order to best feature match for a device or a language system, whatever we're going to to use as that AAC. Cool. So to summarize, you just when you're getting an AAC assessment and you just in in the middle of the assessment, you're determining whether or not they you would think they need an AAC device. So then you kind of transition a little bit of what you were gonna do for your assessment. But overall, if for SLPs doing AAC assessments, really looking at the overall communication profile. So that's receptive language, expressive language, functions, all that stuff. How how does the OT come into play with that assessment once you've kind of looked at all those pieces for the child's profile? Yeah. So as Mara said, I think it really is dependent on the child and their unique needs. Um, one thing that we'll do sort of in the beginning, you know, if an SLP is determining that an OT should be involved, um, then we're really looking at that like care coordination and delineation of roles right away to determine who's going to take which pieces of this assessment. But the OT's role, I think, in general really is about accessing that occupation of communication. So I always, when I speak to OTs about what their role can be in AAC, it always revolves around giving them that access. Um, So that might mean literally looking at an alternative way to physically access the device. So using switch access or eye gaze or, um, you know, using alternative methods even for, or like unique methods for direct selection. So um, looking at things like key guards or uh, styluses to be able to access. Um, It also could be for kids who have more complex bodies. It could be doing the seating and positioning pieces, looking at considerations for mounting of a device or the portability of a a device. So what a strap is going to look like and how that's going to Um, If you're carrying it with a strap or carrying it with a case, how that's going to impact gait and their mobility and also could include like sensory considerations or vision is a big one that I look as a look at as an OT. Um, So, again, definitely depends on the child. But those are sort of that's an overview of all of the things that I would be looking at from an OT lens Um, and then what that collaboration looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. So it would almost be. You would be also looking probably at their fine motor and gross motor abilities, their sensory. And then if they do have some limitations, you're looking to see like, how are they going to take their device to the lunchroom or how are they, you know, how far away does the device need to be on their wheelchair, right? Mounted? Yes, for sure. Okay. And I think that, I mean, Mara and I 
frequently will talk about how this approach to AAC is truly transdisciplinary because some of those lines of where the scopes of practice are blend and it's going to look different for every team. So, you know, on if I'm an occupational therapist with a number of years of experience and I'm working with an SLP who is new to the field and has done a lot of, they may have done a lot of AAC evals, but all of the AAC evals they've done have been um, for kids who use direct selection. And now they have a kid who might benefit from switch access. I'll have a larger role in that access piece because that's sort of my area of expertise there where there could be that same client seeing an SLP who has a ton of years of experience and has done lots of um, evaluations that include alternative access and has learned a lot along the way in an OT who is coming in and does have those, has that scope of practice that includes evaluating for access needs, but doesn't have the experience. So the SLP would take the lead in that case. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you guys would lean on each other. I mean, I, and for anyone, and correct me if I'm wrong, but direct selection is just be a child that's able to scan and touch with their fingers and they don't need any other support. They don't have any motor needs. Um, am I right, ladies? Yeah, that's that's one portion of it. Eye gaze is technically considered direct selection as well. But yes. Okay. Yes. So if you have, because that's the kind of my caseload where I'll have kids that have complex communication needs, but a lot of them have autism or Down syndrome or something that they're physically able to to move their their gross motor skills and fine motor skills. So those would be the kids that you're kind of looking at that, but that's not as big of a piece of the assessment because it's pretty easy to determine. So we're talking about, I don't know, maybe if you both, one or both of you want to share a little bit of the, um, the lingo of, I forget, the feature matching. That was a lingo word, um, Mara threw out there. And then Annabeth, maybe the switch access. And just for people that are maybe newbies to AAC and they're already going, oh my gosh. Yes. What are they talking about? Yes. And, and that's, I think that's the downfall of the little niche area of AAC is that, you know, as SLPs, we get one course now in graduate school about it and that's that's not enough to cover cover all of the areas that that are in there but that's definitely one of the downfalls in in I guess SLP's education for AAC is AAC is such a niche area and you really need a lot of experience but that feature matching is one of those buzzwords that we don't we don't get a lot of um I guess we never get provided a definition of what that is. So thank you for for asking. But feature matching is basically looking at the strengths and weaknesses and the holistic picture of a child or an adult or any communicator and um, the profiles in terms of what things will match their needs the best. So for example, if they are super great at knowing a motor plan or they have a really um, a, a high strength in using motor plans that are consistent, that's something that we want to look at in terms of a language system that is motor plan based because that's playing off their strength in order to um, help really make that communication transition 
easiest um, for them. Yeah, so I really love that example for feature matching. Thank you for um, elaborating on that. And then Annabeth, if you wanted to just share a little bit about access and I think I forget what else you said, or just some of the buzzwords that to help everyone understand what they might go to an OT for getting advice on a student when they're doing an AAC assessment. Yeah, so I think really when we talk about alternative access, like you said, it's something other than um, direct selection with a finger. So when we're talking about direct selection with a finger or really with a stylus, um, we're thinking about a touchscreen device or it could be a low-tech device that you're pointing to. When you move from there, there's like some other options. Like I said, a stylus, there's also options to use like a head pointer or um, something else to point to each selection, each word that you want to say. And from there, I guess as well, there's eye gaze access where um, that can be high tech or low tech as well. And OTs frequently have a lot of input into considerations that go into eye gaze in terms of um, just looking at like basic acuity, but then also um, visual perceptual skills, range of motion, um, ocular range of motion, um, head control and postural control, and all of those pieces that would go into consistently being able to look towards a symbol or a number of symbols um, to be able to access your language system. And so low-tech versions of that literally would be symbols on a board or on a frame um, that a user would be able to gaze towards for a certain amount of seconds in order to let their communication partner know that they're um, that that's their message that they're communicating. And then those high-tech versions have more high-tech eye gaze systems that are um, tracking the position of your pupil. And so another option from there for access that's pretty frequent is switch access. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, I could talk for an entire podcast or six about switch access. Um, but basically, I mean... I think that a majority of clinicians are familiar at least with switches that you would use to be able to activate um, a toy or something something of that nature. And there are so many different ones out there um, for communication. Typically, switch access is done with scanning. So um, a high-tech device itself will scan through in a number of different patterns. Um, the different selections that a child or any user would be using. And then you can hit one switch or multiple switches to move those selections along and then to, um, to choose your selection. Um, the OT plays a large role in determining those switch sites. So like where the switch is going to be most efficiently and consistently accessed and with um, energy conservation in mind, and then also the type of switch. So there's just so many different types out there. And um, that's another part of that feature matching is like, what type of switch can we be using with this user um, to give them that really efficient access to communication that's going to be um, functional for them? Yeah. So for uh, so for the switch access, it would be basing even like their motor skills and what's going to fatigue them or help them to access the switch, you know, efficiently. So that makes total sense. 
And I could totally see how an OT would be really vital to this type of assess, you know, this part of the AAC assessment. So this might be a loaded question for you ladies, but I was wondering, you know, what tools do you use for your AAC assessments? And then how do you, when you guys are assessing together, how does that look or how do you set up the testing environment to maximize the time, but, but also get the information that you need? So there are multiple tools that we use, and I would say that every evaluation looks a little different. And um, depending on what, what clinician or even like what type of clinician you are, it would look what assessment tools would look a little bit different as well. I am typically, I work a little better for my AAC assessments to be um, informal because I have a pretty good groove down in terms of all of the areas I'm looking at um, while I'm doing feature matching and communication. So I that's my personal preference, but there are things out there like um, the functional communication profile, or there's other um, really great informal templates for AAC evaluations um, out there on on the internet as well. So typically, that's that's something that's my go-to in terms of my evaluations. And when Annabeth and I write our AAC evaluations together, I feel like we have a really comprehensive template um, in terms of all of the areas. So that's that's just kind of how how mind works, my mind works. But Annabeth, you use a couple more standardized measures. Yes, sometimes I do. I'm glad you mentioned the template because that was the big thing I was going to say is that we have sort of over time created this template together and we'll do a lot of collaboration, especially in that high frequency program ahead of time to say, okay, like here's what we need in this initial evaluation in the first couple hours that we're going to see this child, but we know we're going to see them after that for weeks at a time or, you know, an entire plan of care or whatever, whatever that care coordination looks like. Um, and we can do more of that extensive evaluation down the road, but what are the primary things we need to get now? Um, yeah, I think in terms of standardized assessments too, for myself, there aren't, there isn't like a go-to that I use every single time. It depends on those needs. Again, I'm always assessing vision and a lot of that is like range of motion and smoothness of saccades and visual pursuits and those sorts of things. And just like any of the motor component piece of it, typically when I'm involved in an evaluation, like we said, it's probably um, a client who has a more complex body. So there's probably more challenges with that motor piece of it. Um, but I've had, I have some tools that I use from the Every Move Counts curriculum, um, which is like a sensory based curriculum for determining switch access and like moving through training of switch access. Um, and they have just a lot of really great data collection tools that I've used over the years. And we'll many times start there when I'm determining, okay, you know, what are, what are these primary switch sites that we want to trial out? Because a lot of times that's, if it's switch access, that's going to be the first goal of mine is determine a switch site, determine some switch types. I think one thing that we didn't really mention is that a lot of times or in most all of our cases, AAC evaluations 
one hour or however much time that you get for an initial evaluation is not enough time for a comprehensive AAC evaluation. So, so that's where our mind is, is that we always do this initial evaluation and get as much information, but knowing that we're going to do extended evaluation for that feature matching piece and um, to really keep evaluating that child or individual because, you know, you could catch them on an hour in an unfamiliar environment and it's, it's not a good day. That's, you're going to get a totally different presentation than you see um, on, on like a really happy day or a really sunny day or something, something like that. There's so many variations. So with that little snapshot of the first time we meet a child, we really, try to think of like, okay, how can we work to make sure this is comprehensive for the first day, but know that we're going to have a plan to extend that evaluation moving forward. Right. So you, I take it you only get an hour of assessment time for kids in your private in the clinic? Um, typically like an hour and a half for, for one discipline and two hours for um, a co-evaluation. That's kind of bananas. I mean, for AAC especially, I think one of the one of the perks of the schools, um, you know, is that we get a sixty-day timeline. So there are assessments that I've done just like on a bilingual child, just no AAC, and I have calculated the time writing the report, all this stuff, and it could be. 10 to 20 hours of if when you count the IEP, the meeting, the collaborating, the report and the assessing. So, and I would say an AAC assessment that, you know, to really look at all those pieces, you guys have been naming a lot of stuff that you look at. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, that's one perk of, I guess, having experience is to work a little bit more efficiently because yeah. you can, once you have a lot of experience or a good grasp on all of those kind of buzzwords that we talked about, you can rule in or rule out things that you want to trial very quickly. However, in order to get a really great picture of the child and to make a recommendation for a device or like right for a device, right for funding for a device, you need a lot of data and an extended amount of time to to see um, those communication opportunities and those access pieces. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point that the service models are different in a school versus in a private practice versus in a hospital. And what happens very frequently with AAC users is that they have teams in all of those settings and they might have an SLP in all of those settings. And so that's why, I mean, when we get a client in who is going to have an AAC eval, that's our very first thing is to reach out to all of those team members and really figure out, okay, are the private practice clinicians the ones who are best suited to do this ongoing evaluation um, and then be the ones to write for that device down the road? Or is it the school therapist or is it maybe the specialized clinic or a hospital um, clinic? So that piece is just really, really important. And again, that's going to, that answer is going to depend on the child. It's also going to depend on the resources. It's going to depend on um, the amount of experience that each of those team members have and lots of different factors. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what it sounds like when you're with the time you're given and, and you guys sound really efficient is that you're really trying to just identify area of need. I mean, that's what we say on the IEPs. You're trying to identify what level they're at with communication, what's their access abilities. And then, so it doesn't sound like in the AAC assessment or in the meeting, you're necessarily saying, these are the devices that we're going to offer. It's yes. It's kind of like, you might say, here are a few that we're going to try, but the the real assessment is going to be probably what you would call therapy. Yes. And and that's, you, you hit the nail on the head, is our initial assessments in our outpatient facility are really like that that baseline data and all the strengths. And then that gives us an idea of what to trial first or what couple things to trial first. And then if you're the treating therapist, you you already know that, but if you pass it to another treating therapist, you make sure that they are aware and um, knowledgeable in, in that. And I would say Annabeth and I do a lot of work with our clinicians that we have at our facility because all of us are generalists at the end of the day and don't have that kind of um, experience or confidence or competence in AAC. So we do a lot of work to make sure that everybody is feeling confident and competent to treat in AAC. And if not, we we are definitely there as sort of mentors in our our practice just to make sure that that child if we did the initial evaluation that that child is still um, getting followed up on and that those those communication modalities are continuing to be trialed. Very cool. Yeah, it's it sounds like you guys have a very unique um, clinic that you get to do some really cool collaboration, which I'm jealous of because I like collaborating as well. So I think that we've gotten a lot of good discussion on how AAC assessments work and how OTs are such an important part of them. And I would love it if we closed out the interview with just sharing some tips and strategies or things that SLPs should consider during an AAC assessment and when to maybe reach out to their OT for a perspective on the student or how, you know, tips for how to start collaborating with the OT during these assessments. Right. So I think I was definitely lucky to find Annabeth as my partner in crime in all of this because she already had that general interest and experience in the AEC world. And I think that's not true for all of OT practitioners because OT scope of practice is really, really wide, just like SLP uh, scope of practice. So I think just to start out collaborating with OTs, I would really pick a couple different areas of like, hey, I noticed that this child um, was really sensory seeking. I would love to get your thoughts on it because I'm wondering how that's impacting their communication. Or, hey, I noticed this this kiddo has a really hard time um, selecting a, a button when we're trying to communicate. Could you take a look and see what their fine motor abilities are and if we might need to look into something else? So I think the more specific things that you can give them, but that are in their scope of practice, that's how you kind of put your put your foot in the door. 
in order to open a collaboration because that's something like, oh, that's in my scope of practice. Yes, I can look at that. That's that's great. And and then you can start to kind of talk about, you know, if you're really passionate like me and Annabeth are, it's like communication is an or is essential for occupation or for participation in occupation and activities of daily living and that's the scope of practice of OTs at the end of the day so i think if you kind of phrase it of something that's in their scope already that's black and white is a little bit easier to start that collaboration totally i love that tip and what about you annabeth Yeah, I mean, Mara, I think, took the words out of my mouth. That was pretty much verbatim what I was going to say. But I think, I mean, I'll just give my perspective as an OT, especially as a new grad. I knew nothing about AAC. And I was excited, but more overwhelmed when I first was starting out. When every, like, that was just the expectation. So when I first started out, I was in a school, um, but it was a specialized school. And the expectation was just like, hey, if a kid needs AAC, this is the OT and SLP team. The OT is just as important as the SLP. And I was like, I learned nothing about this in school. This isn't in my scope. I don't know what's happening. Um, And so that's exactly how it was approached. It was like, okay, let's break this down. OTs are experts in activity analysis and accessing this system to be able to communicate is an activity. So we can break that down. And like Mara said, look at, okay, is it a fine motor challenge? Is it like the OTs can work on um, improving posture and head control to be able to um, make access more efficient or more consistent? And I think, like you said, breaking it down, making it, looking at those bite-sized. More manageable. Yeah, it it does make it. Yeah, manageable. manageable. Totally. I like that. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah, this has been awesome. I, I did have a, a piggyback question as you guys were talking. I'm like, have you ever had a collaboration gone sour? Or have you ever, you know, do you have I- any tips on what not to say to the OT or to the SLP? Or did you ever not stay in your lane? You don't have to go into too much detail. But I mean, it happens on accident, even when you're not even trying to be that way. You know, like that's not in my nature, but that doesn't mean I've never screwed up with how I've collaborated with people. For sure. I think that the communication between the team members at the beginning is so important for that reason. Like to really set out, this is what I feel comfortable with. This is what you feel comfortable with. These are the goals that we have as a team. And this is how we're going to approach them. And um, when those expectations are set from the beginning, then the expectation is also that we're going to keep each other in check if somebody's feeling like they're overstepping um, into somebody else's scope or somebody else's role on that team. Um, I've definitely been on a variety of teams where it, I mean, it really comes down to like that communication wasn't super clear. And so then things, things happen and then feelings are hurt or there's not, I mean, even more important than feelings being hurt, it's not, efficient in moving that child towards being matched for a device. And again, like that's what we said in the beginning is that's the ultimate goal is um, to provide communication to that child. Totally. Yeah. I like that job roles and that way you can be mindful if you're, you know, swerving into someone else's lane. Um, Right. I think I, I don't know if I've ever, 
um, in AUC particularly come across challenges like with with a newer client, but with a client that's already been on my caseload and already been on an OT's caseload. I feel like both of us have kind of gotten in a group groove before and some of that collaboration was lost. And when I wanted to trial something new with the device and then the OT was working on kind of some sensory regulation strategies that the device wasn't always nearby the child or something. I think that's where I've kind of had to take a step back and look at the collaboration piece in terms of like, oh, okay, so maybe the OT just needs a little bit more I guess, advice, or um, that's not the right word, I guess, education. Yeah, just from from the SLP about the importance of accessibility of the device or something like that, and really just breaking it down of like, hey, you know, like, I saw that you were providing this, this client with some deep pressure things. I would love to pick your brain about what strategies you've been trialing so I can incorporate that into their vocabulary so they have a way of of requesting that sensory need. And then that kind of, I feel like that kind of opens the door of like, oh yeah, oh yeah, they have a device. Oh yeah, that, that's probably important to add in a device um, and and things like that. So I guess I've, I've come across it a lot where I've had to kind of take a step back in terms of like getting in a groove with, the OT just does their thing and the SLP just kind of does their thing. And uh, you got to take a step back and look where that collaboration kind of missed out. Yeah, that's a good point. And I love your example of asking them for help on something that is could totally be used with the child. And then it opens the door. So it's not like, hey, <laughs> you're not using the device. And, you know, and that. Right. It's It's a much less threatening conversation than like, hey, like you should really be using the device at all times, blah, blah, blah. And like AUC devices are beast, I guess. And they're they're intimidating, even to speech therapists, because there's so many. The technology is always changing. Simple language in general is a whole new world, <laughs> a whole new language. Um, so if yes, AAC is intimidating. And I can recognize that that's very intimidating, for an OT as well, because that they've had limited experience. Right. Even SLPs have had some limited experience. Yeah. But. Well, and even, I don't know about you, Annabeth, but in the school setting, all my OTs have tons of kids across five campuses and they might even have an aide. So in my head, I can have this vision of what I would love my OT to do and then make a realistic like bridge to you know, build long-term collaboration with them. Cause I think down the road, once you start collaborating, I'm sure you guys are like a well-oiled machine. You, you, you know what the next person's think, thinking collaborating probably doesn't take more than a few minutes at, you know, because you know each other really well. And so when you're starting off with a new team, it is like taking small steps, um, Exactly. Yeah, it's it's baby steps in the beginning with a new team. And in terms of schools, when when you're working in a school and you have, I don't know, three different schools that you're working across, like, that's, it's a lot to manage. So um, really, I would, adv- I guess I, my, I don't work in a school, but I guess you can 
I really talk to your administrators or talk to your um, talk to your administrators and really try to get like, hey, I'd love to give an in-service at the next training day because teachers have training days. And if you can kind of get yourself to give a little presentation, that can at least be like, hey, I'm the face that's probably always wanting you to use the communication <laughs> device. Like, this is why this is my theory. Like, love to chat with you. Well, yeah. Maybe yeah. that is a little bit more yeah. friendly. Yes. Yes. And one thing we didn't mention about school-based practice in general um, is that, yes, that OT is on the team. And as you said, the OTs like the SLPs have like wild caseloads and just are being pulled in a ton of directions. Um, But frequently in school districts too, there'll be sort of that like AT um, professional lead. Yes. And I know that that's structured differently in every single district and every single state as well. Um, But they're typically a very large part of that team. And, you know, the teacher, obviously a large part of that team as well. And so many times those, those AT specialists have lots of experience in the access side of things as well, and may have more experience. Right. A school-based OT does. Totally. And I would say the other little piece of with teams, and I try to do this too, where I'm like, I don't want to assess a student if the psychologist may need to be brought in. So a lot of times with some of the younger friends, they'll try to get you at those RTI student study team meetings, like, Oh, just test this child. And I have to really look it through, you know, their profile. And then I go, you know what, the psychologist needs to be a part of this or, Oh, maybe we need to get the whole team involved. Cause whenever they try to hodgepodge, you know, they'll start one and then it doesn't keep things cohesive and even if you could just collaborate with the OT on their what fine motor things they found, even if you're not co-assessing, you can really get a lot of information from their report on, you know, questions you can even ask them or things to consider with their with the child's AAC device. So um, lots of stuff to consider. So before we end this, I would love it if you ladies would tell people where they can find you. Um and anything else you want to add? Yeah, so we mentioned this earlier, but I feel like our Instagram page is the most active and that's where you can find us probably easiest. So our Instagram handle is at the fanny pack therapist. And you can find them. I'll put the uh, I'll put a link to their website in the show notes and Hopefully one day soon we'll be able to get some um, fanny packs from you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. If, if not, we we have some go-to fanny packs that we can recommend. Okay, cool. Yes, I think I want a clear fanny. Do you guys have a good recommendation for a clear fanny pack? Oh, we do. <laughs> we'll send it to you. Okay. The one that we the one that we have is from Amazon. So, yeah. but it's it's, it's good. Awesome. It's solid. It's a good one. It yeah. works very well in the COVID world for cleaning. Yeah. You put your low-tech symbols in there, and then it's a little communication system to Send the link my way. I need it. So anyways, thank you, Mara and Annabeth, for coming on. And if you want to, you know, they, are, they also share tips about minimalist therapy and as well as AAC and just how to have fun and collaboration. So definitely go follow them and remember SLPs to be the SLP that every kid wants to see. 
Stay inspired. Until next week, I'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Uh-huh.